The reading this morning is Ezra 7. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Zariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meriah, the son of Zerephiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from, ba- uh, from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, and for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is the copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord of Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasurers of Trans-Euphrates who are provided with are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and on his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, 
or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the vision of your God which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the law of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. When Catherine and I first met, we were immediately interested in one another. I don't say that to brag. You'll see that the story uh, continues from there. She turned up one Sunday in a small church that I had been attending for a couple months by that point, and we quickly exchanged numbers. In fact, I think she asked for my number before I had a chance to ask for hers, which is pretty good. Um, And a couple weeks later, we went on our first date. I seem to remember that it went okay, but I learned some time later that when Catherine got home, her housemate asked her how it went, and she said, yeah, it was fine, but he's not really my type. And she had written me off after one date. And if I'm honest, that's not the first time that happened to me. Uh, Thankfully, it was the last time that happened to me, but um, lots of first dates, not many second. Don't know what that says. Anyway, this isn't about me. This is about the Bible. So um, what, makes, what makes you write somebody off? What makes you write somebody off? Maybe you try not to make snap judgments about people. And maybe you, you try to give everyone a fair chance. But we all eventually have to decide, will this person be my spouse or not? Will this person be the friend that I want them to be or won't they? Will they be the employee that my company needs, or do we need to get somebody else in? And we do it for spiritual matters as well. Maybe you've invited a friend to church before, maybe a a few times, and each time they've refused, and now you think, well, they're just not interested. I write them off. Well, I think that um, that may have been how the returned exiles felt about their fellow Jews who stayed in Babylon when they returned. They may not have been upset with them. After all, it made good sense to stay in Babylon. That's where they had established their families and where they had jobs. It it was a big thing to uproot and to move back to Jerusalem. Maybe they weren't angry at them, but they'd probably written them off. These were people who were serious about serving God, and they had returned in the days of King Cyrus. God's Spirit had stirred them up, and with God's help, they had accomplished the rebuilding of the temple. That's what we saw last week. That's where chapter 6 ended, with that joyous celebration that they all had together. God was at work. And the serious people about... Uh, wanting to see God's work in the world, they were in Jerusalem, they may have thought. But the Jews who stayed behind in Babylon, they had missed it. 
whether due to indifference or cowardice or faithlessness or some other reason, they were blind to what God was doing in the world. They were hundreds of miles, 900 miles away. And from the perspective of the returned exiles, the Babylonian Jews must have uh, at least, at best, been peripheral to God's plans and at worst, been excluded from the people of God. And perhaps the Judean Jews wrote them off, but chapter 7 shows that God was not done with them yet. Between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, 57 years have passed uh, without so much as a word about them. The, the temple, it was completed in 515 B.C. The seventh year of King Artaxerxes, that was 458 B.C. And so it's likely by this point that everyone we've heard about in the first six chapters of this book are dead. And the generation living now has not seen a great work of God happen in their lifetime. Maybe they've heard about it from their elders, but they haven't seen it. This is effectively a new generation. But as the author picks up the story, where does he find God beginning the next great next great part of his salvation plan. Where does he look? Where does the camera zoom to see what God is doing in the world? But back in Babylon. Not in Jerusalem. That's where we meet Ezra. The title character of the book. For the first time, this is where we see Ezra. And as it turns out, Ezra is a descendant of the unfaithful Jews who stayed in Babylon as is Nehemiah, who was his contemporary. Now, his ancestors had obviously made the wrong choice. They had missed out on the purposes of God in their generation. And yet, God wasn't through with them. Somehow, in the heart of the pagan Persian empire, God has preserved his people and prepared Ezra with everything he needed to be the next great leader of the people of God. And before we move on, I I just want to pause and reflect on the goodness of that. The goodness of the fact that God's purposes include the Babylonian Jews along with the Judean Jews. It just goes to show that if we write people off, God doesn't write people off. I've been very struck by this truth as I've been preparing. God is at work in people and situations long after we give up hope. And what a comforting thought that is. We might not see God's plans unfold in our time frame. We might not even see God's plans unfold in our lifetime. And yet, God is working things out in his own way, in his own time, And he's not writing people off. So when we watch the unfolding violence in South Africa over recent weeks, or when we hear about insurgencies in Nigeria, or when we read about the worrying developments in Hong Kong, we may feel like everything is a mess, like We should throw up our hands and give it up and write off these countries and these peoples. And yet, God is still at work in them. And who knows what he's going to accomplish out of them and through them. 
or on a more, more personal level. Perhaps God's purposes include the eventual salvation of your parents or your children who have been rejecting him for so long. Perhaps God will raise up the children of your pagan siblings as the next great evangelist in your home countries. The people that we've written off may well be the ones that God uses in the next great part of his salvation of the world. He can do it. He, he seems to delight in doing it. That's what we read in Scripture. And that's what we see in church history. God does the unexpected. And so the next time we feel like writing a people group off or a person off, let's pause to consider God's surprising raising up of Ezra out of Babylon. And rather than anger or despair, let's consciously, prayerfully hand those situations over to God and say, I can't see any good that's going to come of this, Lord, but you can. You know. We might not see how the problem can be solved, or the, the situation resolved, or the person redeemed, but the good hand of God is at work in the world. And they can be. So let's pray them up rather than write them off. Trusting God to bring good out of messy situations. Or maybe you feel that you have been written off in some way. That you have missed your chance. Maybe your family members have been Christians for a long time and you have just never committed yourself to Christ. And now you feel like, oh, the time has passed. If I was going to do that, I should have done it years ago. Or maybe you feel that you've been disqualified from being part of the people of God, having a relationship with God due to some sin or some shame. Well, look at Ezra. God used a man from an unlikely background to powerfully lead his people, and maybe God would use you too if you would just hand yourself over to him. If 57 years later was not too late for Ezra, it's not too late for you. You can have a fresh start. You can begin anew in following Jesus. So that's the origin of this godly leader that we see here. But now let's think about the qualifications of this godly leader that God has raised up. What kind of leader did they need exactly? What would you read about on Ezra's LinkedIn page if you opened it? Well, first of all, in verses 1 to 5, he was qualified. That's what all those names that you read very capably, Philip, uh, that's what all of those were pointing to. They were tracing back that uh, the genealogy of Ezra, ever since the days of Aaron, Moses' brother, ever since he was the priest leading the people of God, the priests were charged with knowing what God says and teaching it to the people. 
And in these verses we see Ezra is not usurping that authority for himself. He is qualified because he is a descendant of the priests and Aaron specifically. He has the qualifications necessary for the role he's called to perform. He can trace his genealogy back. He therefore has authority to introduce reforms. So he was qualified, first of all. Second of all, he knew the word of God. We see that in verse 6 and 10. It wasn't that Ezra just had the right qualifications. He had proven himself well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord had given. The phrasing here and in verse 10 suggests that Ezra was a serious scholar of God's word. He didn't treat it in an offhand way. He didn't get the gist of it and teach it to others. He knew it in depth and was therefore able to teach thoroughly. And we see throughout this chapter, six times, Ezra is referred to as the teacher. That's how Artaxerxes refers to him. That's how uh, the author refers to him. That's how Ezra refers to himself. That's teacher, teacher, teacher. It's clear that that's what his main role was among the people. And thirdly, he was faithful. We see that in verse 10. And this last point, I think, is the key to why Ezra was the right man for the job in that day. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. One commentator, Derek Kidner, he he puts it like this in his commentary. Ezra is a model reformer in that what he taught he had first lived, and what he lived he had first made sure of in the scriptures. He worked diligently to know what God commanded, and then to live what God commanded, and only after that to teach what God commanded to others. Do you see the, the three essential qualifications for spiritual leadership among the people of God? Study, behavior, and teaching. Now, I hope you will hold any Christian pastor or author or speaker uh, that you listen to, to that standard, including me. I'm certainly looking out for these things in the people I appoint to various uh, ministries in our church. It occasionally happens that a person who is obviously gifted in many ways is suggested for leadership in the church. Whether that's Sunday school teacher or church committee member or other ministries, it's not just here but in other churches I've worked at as well, but they will be missing one of these key qualifications. They want to teach, but they don't know the word of God. So how can they? Or they want to lead, but they're not living out what the scriptures teach. So how can I put them in front of others to teach the scriptures? And I've occasionally found myself having to say, I don't think you are quite ready for that role. Now that's not to say they're not a Christian. It's not to say that they aren't very gifted. They might have all sorts of gifts that would be a real blessing to the church, but they're just not qualified. It's simply 
that unless and until they become real students of God's word and are actively living it out or seeking to, they aren't qualified to be spiritual leaders. That's the standard. So why is it so important that we maintain a high standard like that? I mean, wouldn't it be better if we just had everybody leading in various ways, especially in a small congregation like ours? There are lots of jobs to do, very few people to do them. Shouldn't we just get everybody leading? Well, it's because God's gracious hand is on faithfully devoted leaders like Ezra and not on other sorts. That's the connection between verse 9 and verse 10. How did Ezra and the thousands of people traveling with him, carrying great wealth with them, how did they make it safely from Babylon to Jerusalem uh, without robbers overtaking them? Verse 9, the gracious hand of God was on him. And why did King Artaxerxes grant Ezra every request that he made? Verse 6, because the gracious hand of God was on him. And how did Ezra have courage to lead, not only through that journey, but uh, into this new phase of rebuilding the people of God? Verse 28, the hand of the Lord was on him. Because, verse 10, because Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. God prospered Ezra in all that he did because of Ezra's purpose. Ezra had set in his heart to know God and obey God and to teach others what God had commanded. And friends, that is my purpose in this church. And I pray it's the purpose of all of you who join me in various ministries uh, across the board. With that as our purpose, we cannot fail because God will prosper us. That doesn't mean it will be easy. It requires persistence and devotion, but it will succeed. Where the Bible is taught faithfully over time, that is where we see spiritual life and health. Christians grow. Children are discipled. Strong and meaningful relationships across every boundary are formed. Strength is gained. Hope is found. It happens in every church around the world that faithfully devotes itself to the teaching and living of God's word. Because God prospers churches like that. And someone might say, how can that be possible? I mean, look at me. And look at most church leaders that you know. Most of us are not great reformers like Ezra was. I study, but I don't know enough. I try to live in a way that's consistent with God's commands, but I am a sinner. And any of you who have been around me for any length of time will know some of those ways. 
that I sin and fail. And I teach, but I'm not as diligent as I should be in doing it. There are lots of opportunities that I'm not taking up. And I guess most pastors would probably say about the same. You know, how can a church be blessed despite the obvious weakness of its leaders? What I've applied to me, I leave you to apply to other leaders across the church or other churches. How can a church be blessed despite weakness in its leaders? It's because the overall leader of the church far exceeds Ezra in knowledge, in godliness, and in teaching. The leader of this church, he doesn't just know the word of God, he is the word of God incarnate. The leader of this church, he didn't just obey God's commands, he perfectly obeyed them. The leader of this church didn't just interpret the scriptures accurately, he spoke authoritatively the word of God. A church like ours, under a pastor like me, can prosper because Jesus Christ is the leader of this church. I lead under his leadership. And under his leadership, the church can never, never, never fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. His church. Oh sure, this particular pastor might fail. This particular congregation might go off the rails, but the church will remain. God will never lack a faithful witness in this world. Jesus is leading the church throughout the whole earth, and Jesus is leading the church in Saikang. This one. And so we have every confidence that we have the right leadership for the job. And if we've got the right leader in place, what sort of impact should we see from that? That's the the last section of, of this chapter, verses 11 to 26, the impact of a godly leader. Because like the previous kings of the Persian Empire, Um, a a generation before, Artaxerxes sends Ezra back with all the the people and provisions and protections that he needs for the job ahead. Anyone who wants to go to Jerusalem, they can go. Uh, He's given roughly two years of supplies for the operation of the temple, and no local officials will be permitted to tax their work. The good hand of God is on Ezra and the people of God uh, to to bring that sort of generosity out of the heart of a pagan king. But even beyond that generous provision, Ezra is given authority to rule and to appoint others. Verse 25, And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of the trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you who are to teach any who do not know them. Ezra is charged with teaching the whole word of God to the whole people of God. And what a massive task that is. It's 
too much for one man alone to do that. He's given authority to appoint this whole system of overseers to help carry out the work of teaching and applying the word of God to every sphere of life. And what a vision that is. The godly leader devotes himself to godly study and godly living so that he can do godly teaching. And as he teaches others, they take up that same way of life, studying, living, and teaching others, and so forth and so on down the line. That's the strategy. And brothers and sisters, this is the direction that our church is going in and will continue to go in. By God's good hand, we've seen people stepping into new areas of ministry and leadership, whether that's leading growth groups or or teaching Sunday school or other new areas of of ministry, like this evangelistic outreach in Ontai. And my goal as the overall leader that God has appointed for this place is to call and equip more people to step into more areas of Christian ministry. So I want to invest in people who want to minister. I want to see as many people as possible knowing, living, and teaching the Bible to others. Whether that is simply in your own household, as we're all called to do in our own household, or whether that's in a more public sort of context, whether that's Sundays or other times in the week. It is too great a task for me alone. I need you to step in to minister to the English-speaking community of our area. Because I'm not going to be as effective of a minister to the people you know as you will. I'm not going to be as effective a minister to the, the children that you are, are raising up as you will as parents. I need you to teach your friends, your family, your colleagues. And for those of us willing to take on this high calling, I know that we can have a huge impact. Not because of your qualifications or mine, and not because uh, of your innate abilities or mine, but because Jesus is the leader. Do you see? He has instructed us. And so therefore, we can instruct others. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I want to say the same. In every way that I imitate Christ, imitate me. In every way that I fail, well, please forgive me. Help me to to succeed next time. But as we move forward together, Jesus will enable us, despite our failings, to have a massive impact in this area and beyond. He'll enable you to. But we'll need his help, so let's pray as we come to a a close. Lord God, you have, in your wisdom, seen fit to include each of us in your plans to save a, a world for yourself 
reach out to every tribe, nation, and tongue to redeem a people, to bring about a new creation. We know that we are not able to do that, but you are able. The Lord Jesus is able. And in full confidence of him, we want to take our part. So please, would you lead this little church to play its part well and faithfully and lead each one here to avenues of ministry and areas of impact where we might be able to bring honor and glory to his name as you help us to do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.